I want to say that playing cello in a marching band for parades and so forth is probably the equivalent of, say, drafting a long snapper for your fantasy football team. But the real question is, why do I come up with thoughts like that? Where do they come from? And I'll tell you, it's mushrooms. Kind of. But to be more vivid and have a more clear uh, explanation, uh, it, well, it probably was inspired by mushrooms. The whole notion of anybody playing what looks to be a stand-up bass or a cello in a um, marching band in a parade they would simply have to take a chair and they would (laughs) pull the chair along with them as they're playing the bass to catch up with the band the guys marching with their trumpets and their trombones and their drum sets and (laughs) and then the one poor guy that's got a wooden chair he's got to carry in set down every 12 feet and then prop up his cello and start going to town. Is that a thing? That's the stuff you think of when you're, when you're on mushrooms, I guess. But it actually came from a Woody Allen movie, to be perfectly honest. But I'll tell you this. I'm working up a bit in my act, and it's a yard sale bit. That's what in, my mushroom experience was inspired to come up with a bit for a yard sale. I drove by a yard sale the other day and it would, and it it occurred to me that it would probably be funnier if they were actually selling the yard instead of the shit that was on it. You know, somebody just pulls up and just says, I'll take it. And then starts rolling up the sod, you know, or like half off. He just takes half the, just starts rolling up half the lawn, you know, maybe that'd work more. So maybe in a, like a cartoonish sense, maybe like a far side style. I don't know. But that's the shit you think of when you're doing mushrooms. Kind of. Well, that's the, that's the stuff you... That's the byproduct, I would say, of taking psilocybin mushrooms. Um, let me... So let me back up just a, just a hair here. So it's all of a sudden kind of become a tradition now. Somewhat. <laughs> Towards the end of the year, I will do kind of this ceremonial it's like a mm, ritual of blowing out the pressure lines blowing out the blowing out the you know distilling the pipes so to speak you know just kind of a prolonged derangement of the senses to kind of erase the blackboard so to speak you know or erase the whiteboard or just clean the slate and start with a fresh take on things and so I did, so last year may have been maybe the initial kickoff. I, I, I remember last year we were, uh, I was with uh, a buddy of mine, Jay, and we were, it was the night before Thanksgiving. It was the night before Thanksgiving. And uh, so we were, uh, my lady was making her uh, turkey and all, you know, cooking and so forth. And uh, so he and I were watching Tron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we had dabbled in some psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, we had uh, kind of liberally um, sprinkled a few throughout our evening's meal and then proceeded to just get in the zone. Get in the zone! And it got to a point where, like, you were just entranced by the colors of the... See, Tron is like a great... That is... When you take mushrooms and you watch that movie, you understand... Like, then you get a sense of understanding. You get it. Like, you see... This movie was made for mushrooms, okay? Because it's basically like... And it's so far-fetched. It's like Jeff Bridges gets, you know, shot by some, you know, ray or laser ray and transported into some other dimension as a digital being and then he's forced to compete in some otherworldly kind of motherboard style death match of some sort where he plays Tron he fights against Tron who is the 
Bruce Boxleitner is the baddest. He's the baddest of the badasses. And but the colors are so vivid, so vivid. So we kind of got kind of locked into this, you know, where you just it was silence. You were spellbound for gosh, at least well first half of the movie I'm just like just he and I are in lockstep just like are you seeing what I'm seeing and he's like yeah so this year I thought okay let's do this let's do this we're gonna you know we'll get our mushrooms and it'll be a lark well it won't be okay I shouldn't say that it's not gonna be a lark it wasn't a lark okay micro excuse me micro dosing is a probably more lark of an enterprise to endeavor and then what it is is it gives you kind of this ethereal sensation so I've been told so the idea of course the other night was to well here we are it's the week of Thanksgiving we got our mushrooms uh my lady and I we um sequestered ourselves into the into a setting that was conducive to mind expansion I put on the movie, and it was liftoff, man, and that shit, okay, let me back up one more time, let me say this, uh, we, it wasn't even a full eighth of an ounce, it was half of a bag of like a seventh of an ounce, half a bag, and I took one cap, and then part of a stem, or a stem, nowhere near, nowhere near a full bag, which would have been a seventh Seventh, eighth, seventh, a seventh of an ounce, not an eighth of an ounce, but a seventh, uh, or a ninth. I don't know. It wasn't a full eighth, something like that. I can't do math right now. So, and then I had, I thought, okay, I fasted for the day. That was probably mistake one. And then, um, what, by the time it came time to proceed to get the ceremony underway <coughs> I took the cap <clears throat> but then I made a little food I had a couple of tacos I had to just put something in there and as soon as the movie started I just got into it and I I was kind of I could sense there was something building okay and I thought it would be an ethereal kind of like again a chill environment just we're gonna look at some light shows. It's it's Tron, man. This movie was made for mushrooms, for fun, for colors, and uh, just wrapping your brain around digitizing human beings, and <laughs> which is the future. It's AI, man. It's AI. It's the future. And uh, so I started to kind of tiptoe in and out of reality. And what I was seeing was like, I was watching these guys, these actors dressed up in these funny uh, foam neon fluorescent suits who were just probably, as it was being filmed back in 1980 or whenever this is, I think it was like 19, I think I saw it was like nine and it didn't even get good reviews, but it was, well, in the mind of a mushroomer like myself, probably, you now know it was ahead of its time because it's the penultimate movie for mushrooms. Uh, if you're ready for that experience, which I, it, like I say, I was it, the the whole experience was teasing me. It was telling me like, hey man, um, you know, there's no such thing as microdosing, bitch. You're in, in for a penny, in for a pound, bitch. This is the real deal. So buckle up, because what I what my perception of microdosing was is taking a small portion what it really means is to grind up some of the stem take a little bit of the powder but i just popped a stem and it was i was uh i was richard branson at fifty-five thousand feet all of a sudden uh, you know if space is at sixty thousand feet i was about fifty-five thousand feet and uh i was the you know i was I was William Shatner, man. I was I was Elton John. I was a rocket man. I was. Uh, also, I'm trying to I'm trying to kind of keep a foothold in reality. Just laughing to myself about these poor actors looking at each other, making this movie that got bombed. That was a bomb when it came out. Think to myself, these guys probably asking each other like, 
<laughs> are we still getting paid for this? Like, is this real? Is this really an acting gig? Are we really, is this really happening? But what I'll, what I then proceeded to understand was it didn't matter anymore because all of a sudden reality just started to melt away a bit. And I had, to, <laughs> it was like the lights were just, your brain just was trying to process all these images coming in and out of the flat screen, just parading all over the room and just creating this network of zigzagging patterns and all of a sudden like I'm seeing math equations as I close my eyes that are just floating by and I what it was telling me with this mushroom this entity this being this thing from the ground was made by God was telling me look bitch there is no microdose you're in you just you just crossed the line man and you need to respect me (laughs) I'm like, oh, fuck, oh, shit. Oh, no. Oh, no, what have I done? So, I started to um, think to myself, well, last year, you know, I tripped out a little on the colors of, of the movie, and then I just sauntered off and climbed into bed, and that was it, and I was cool this this wasn't happening this was a different this was a different ordeal this was something else entirely what it was was it was well i was fight i i think i was i real i soon realized like this is not a drill and you know against thoughts start racing through your head, you know, and you're, you're kind of stripped of your ego. It forces you to strip yourself of any ego that you have with you. And all of a sudden thoughts of like playing a cello in a marching band kind of start making sense. Thoughts start racing through your head. Like, you know, the first drop of water that ever existed on earth is still circulating somewhere through something or someone and will be passed along again through earth's efforts to someone else. And I'm like, Whoa, so ho, 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 ho. But then I started kind of sweating like a sweat lodge. Like it became like, if I had to say what I've never, you know, obviously I don't have the capacity at the moment for ayahuasca or an ayahuasca setting, but that's what it, see, ayahuasca is a whole other ball game. Basically you have to be chaperoned. It's typically chaperoned by like the shaman. A shaman is in the, it takes place in the jungle, South America, Amazon, uh, Yucatan Peninsula, uh, Central America out here. It's, I believe it's illegal ayahuasca, but it's just a, it's an herb. It's a, it's an Amazonian herb, a jungle herb that is turned into uh, a drink that you ingest and then you're you're kind of t- guided by the shaman through the ceremony and the ceremony uh takes place as you i would say over 50% at least half if not more vom- have us vomiting like it's like this it's this it, i guess it's the, that's the cleansing part you know but i was sweating it out i'm sweating all of a sudden my my eyes are watery i'm not crying but i'm watering i'm sweating i'm shaking it's cold you know we're perched up atop the our, the little condo there looking out up over the rooftops of roseville looking like some post industrial mary poppins situation and i'm tripping balls and so I kind of nestle in with my lady. She's got some big boobs. So I kind of tuck in there for the ride. But I'm riding this now. I'm riding. I'm I am I'm Buck Rogers, man. I'm Harrison Ford. I'm Han Solo. I'm fucking you know, 21st century, you know? I'm uh I'm T-Rex, man. I'm a 20th century boy. And uh so I'm just trying to kind of hang on at this point. And the idea is, again, it was to microdose, but this thing is telling me, look, don't fight it, okay? All of a sudden, it starts communicating with me. First of all, it tells, it, it, it cuts right to the chase because it, it, it respects, it'll respect you if you respect it. And, it. and it cuts to the chase. It says, all right, bitch, listen, you know and I know, we all know, 
We are all one. We are all one. But there's a door up there that right now you don't want to open, okay? You're not ready for it. You're not quite ready for it. So just give in. And it just I just kept getting this message, give in. Just give in. Just let it happen. Let it go. So I'm so it's, so it's slowly stripping me of any egotistical thoughts, any kind of barrier or obstacle or front that you you know, some superficial wall that you put up, you know, and I go into like a, it's like a fever dream. So I'm sweating it out. I'm sweating and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm come, I'm kind of coming in and out of it. You know, I, I have a moment of clarity, you know, I had a couple of fig Newtons handy. I grabbed one. I thought I should maybe try and metabolize, help this kind of dilute the metabolization of this and kind of slow it down, just slow it down a little But as I closed my eyes, I nestled back into my my my, my, la- my lady's boobs. I uh, I kept getting this message that said, "Surrender, surrender, just give in, just just let it happen, just let it happen." So finally, I thought to myself, "You know what? That's right. Just give in, because now your mind becomes the mushroom. Your mind is the mushroom, and your mind's on a journey, and your mind has basically left the building." And you are just left in your little vessel there, just kind of watching things happen and just kind of accepting whatever it is, the fate that, you know, it, it waits for you. But then it comes back around. It comes back around and it says, okay, you ready to dance? And now it becomes a dance. It becomes like a like a waltz, like one of those waltzes, like one of those, one of those farmer dances, those Kayleys, like the Kayleys that they have in Scotland that you'd go, it's like a end of the year harvest dance. It's like Ichabod Crane and Legend of Sleepy Hollow type, you know, where they're at the dance and you're dancing with this and you're, you're all pirouetting and you're just, but the, but the, the psilocybin's dancing with you. It says, okay, come on now, follow me. Let me lead. Let me lead. Okay. And you just let it lead. (laughs) And, and finally, you're like holding on for, you know, you're just kind of holding on and then, and then you settle in and then, and then you get the flow and then you understand and then you get it and then you get it and it becomes a flow and then that flow happens and you learn to, you learn to kind of manip, not manipulate it, but just understand like everything's cool, man. Everything's cool because you've accepted it. And you don't want to taunt it. It's not the, you're not, you're not, you're not, you know, you're, you're humbled now. You're humbled and you're cool and you're, this is kind of like what, at the point where the shaman's going to lead you and it's going to just let you kind of have visions now. And then you have visions and you have these crazy visions and, and they vary. And your mind kind of, mind didn't seem to race like it has in the past, but it's kind of purging itself. It's, it's probably more like purging a lot of stuff. So, so by about oh maybe a little after midnight, I kind of the fever broke, and it, and everything kind of came back around. I I was still like, res- at this point, it was a respect now that I had for it because it, it reminded me like hey man you got a little complacent there you wanted to tron it up you wanted to watch some movies you wanted to you know but the people that don't respect it are the ones out running around the streets naked talking to fire hydrants and shit like that those are the people that you know uh, maybe shouldn't do stuff like that And you, but in the depths of that you're like am I going to stay like this forever am I going to be like this you know it's like that pulp song you know, um, sorted for ease and whiz about that experience, that mind-blowing experience in the, a field in Hampshire where everyone drops acid or takes ecstasy. It felt like ecstasy because I wanted, because when I when the fever broke, I wanted to just, I wanted to rub and touch and roll and just hug and listen to things and music, and I was kind of vibing off my lady who had her earphones in and she was listening to Metallica. And she had a little wine, and I had a couple sips of her wine, and, you know, it was good. It was just, it was uh, this, 
It was just this kind of initiation. It was like you're being reinitiated. You know? You're reinitiating yourself into society and you start to understand like a lot of shit doesn't it doesn't matter, you know? Whatever your preconceived notions are of this, that, or the other, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're all we're all part of the same organic material. Like I say, that first drop of water that ever existed on Earth, that ever existed in the cosmos, is still around somewhere. It's still floating in vapor in some form, or steam, or liquid, or ice. And it's going to be there forever. You know? And it's going to pass through you, and, you're pe- and, it's, and time is passing through you, and it's passing through you forever. So I started... <laughs> I don't know, all the stuff that kind of led up to that was really, uh, it was, it was f- formative, but inconsequential. I mean, I was watch. you know, I, I decided I was going to take, well, I went to the, uh, library the other day and I got a few more books and that books that I've read before, uh, I got, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. I read that a long time ago. It's about the firebombing of Dresden, Germany, and how 100,000 Germans just wiped out just like that, which which was a, a an event that was kind of overlooked. It was a real historical event. It's kind of it was kind of overlooked in the shadow of dropping the bomb on the two bombs on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, killing 100,000 people over there. We kind of gloss over the notion that you know, the same amount of people, if not more, died just in a firebombing that we performed on uh, the German people in World, World War II. So that was Slaughterhouse-Five. Then I got this other book, uh, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. That's Tom Robbins. He's he's an acid head. He did acid with Terrence McKenna, who is kind of, I don't know, he's kind of a high priest figure of that culture, kind of up there with Timothy Leary, kind of setting the, t- you know, situations for shamanistic kind of, uh, you know, trip, trips and, uh, and, uh, journeys of the mind and so forth. So, so that seemed appropriate. I started reading the first couple, I don't know, 20, 30 pages of even cowgirls get the blues. That's a great, they made a movie out of it. Uh, Gus Van Zandt made a movie out of it. It wasn't very good. It's essentially about this girl, Sissy Hankshaw, who has, uh, oversized thumbs. They're like about, Oh, I don't know twice the size of her own hand and she's a phenomenal hitchhiker <laughs> and so there you can see it's like this is yeah this is written by an acid head so and then the third book i got was the crying of lot 49 which is tom thomas pinchon i read that in college and it's basically about well it's well it's thomas pinchon uh, who actually did a little uh, review blurb for even cowgirls get the blues on the cover of the book that I checked out for Tom Robbins. So it was all interrelated, all interconnected. Thomas Pinchon is this great, notoriously reclusive writer that wrote, you know, one of the most challenging books of the 20th century, Gravity's Rainbow, up there with James Joyce's Ulysses. It's just like, it's the one book like everybody starts, but nobody seems to be able to finish. It's about a thousand pages long and it's just, it, it's uh, it's kind of an esoteric. I believe it has to do with. I've I have not made an attempt at that. I've not tried to made an, you know, taken a crack at that one because it's the 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 reputation is kind of complex and I'm get you. Know, it's one of the things you got to be in the mindset for. It's like. It's like these Woody Allen. I, all of a sudden, I got in this Woody Allen kick on a uh, what day was that? Friday, Thursday night, the night before we we took the mushrooms. So I'm watching um, Take the Money and Run. I remember, I remember my my parents putting that on when I was real little because the movie came out. I want to say in like seventy, early seventy, and. Um, It was funny because it was like, uh, that was the, it was like a surrealist kind of movie about this bank robber who just, his parents didn't, (laughs) it was kind of this poor guy that just kind of was, 
maligned him <laughs> as, as a youth uh, and uh, just was a, again, kind of a, I don't know, a failure in most aspects of life. I mean, just down to the point where he's playing a, playing a cello in a marching band and trying to keep up with the marching band on with his wooden chair. The other movie I was I was thinking about checking out was uh, his first Woody Allen's first movie was uh, and and drop the whole cancel culture shit. Who gives a fuck? I mean, look again. I, I mean, how many of y'all still got your R. Kelly records? I mean, didn't we all didn't we all have a grandparent that was like a racist? I mean, we're slowly diluting it from the culture. And so you have to separate the art from the person. You know, Roman Polanski was a great director. He's a dirtbag as a human being, but he is a phenomenal director, okay? So, <clears throat> so stuff like that just fascinates. You know, like Woody Allen, his first movie, his first credited directorial debut was a movie called What's Up Tiger Lily, which was about this obscure... Um, this Japanese movie. It was. Let's see, where is it? It's called. Um, it's a Japanese spy film called International Secret Police, semicolon Key of Keys, and he overdubbed it with completely original dialogue that had nothing to do with the plot of the original film. So <laughs> you're watching basically like an obscure Japanese movie in black and white, I believe. But it's overdubbed with complete different dialogue that has nothing to do with... It's completely separate from anything that's even going on in the movie. So he kind of distanced himself from that. I mean, it wasn't... It was kind of like... A bit of a... It's clever. It's a bit of a mind fuck, though. But I, I have to... I have to laugh, but I, and I have to admire it. But I think he kind of distanced himself from the movie at some point. Um, just because it was so, like... It was just too much for anybody to wrap their brain around. So, uh, uh, fair enough. <laughs> um, so then, uh, that's why I ultimately chose Take the Money and Run. Because it was so... It was kind of avant... Again, Woody Allen kind of could do it at this point. I mean, he raised the money himself. I mean, the, we're talking about... We're talking about a movie with a budget of, like, 400000 You know? I mean, simple budgets back then. And uh, they obviously weren't huge feature presentations. They were limited release type stuff. Probably on the... What would some, some would say the artsy side. Shown in, like, small theatrical type release situations and uh, so that's I don't know every now I think it's this time of year I get into that mode I think I want to watch something that isn't just some gigantic Marvel Studios just overproduced trillion dollar epic you know I want something that's kind of like it's out there man it's out there man but a lot of this comes from revisiting uh it's like it's like revisiting the books you know it's like what how how it's a reflection of how i've changed since i've seen it the first time or read it the first time and that's part of the process of taking the mushrooms as well it's it's like okay do they have an effect on you do you see growth do you see distillation do you see a change in your your view of things. So I'm delving back into these books, these movies, to see how I look at them now. You you know, there's two schools of thought when you when you rewatch stuff in particular or reread stuff, I guess. But more so with movies. Like I think there's a comfort level to like you're used to a certain. Uh, like my my daughter producer, she. Her and I have seen Pineapple Express approximately 712 times. And I think there's a certain type of comfort in that. Because you... It caters to the anxiety in you. Because it is going to 
not sh- you know the end you know what's going you know the ending you're there's no discomfort there's no there's no over expectation or surprise you and it's a good movie and you like that movie so it's that's there's a comfort in that there's an expectation so every time you turn it on you, you you're 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 comforted by knowing that as pre- as predictable as it is it's comforting now the other version of that is to see where you stand on the growth chart in my opinion that's why I do it so do I see anything new in this this time around have I read anything new this time around do I see a different am I seeing it from another perspective and and that's really the key to me is plotting the growth chart you know like you have like as a little kid when you stand against the wall and they put a little mark on the wall and then a month later you do it again to see only in this instance it's me rereading these books it's me it's me looking again at these movies take the money and run you know husbands and wives that was another one seen that a long time ago that was a clever one that's a good one um but they ultimately they become like cinematic markers in your life to me again to me but some of those takeaways i had for example would be say like uh, well i can take the money and run like i mean it's woody allen he got, the guy looks like he's he's the human version of a mole you know he's got those thick dark rim glasses he's balding his hair's all fucked up he's short he's jewish he's neurotic he's playing the stand-up bass cello in a marching band but the woman the love interest is total inequity completely unequal outclasses him outdoes him taller than him more beautiful than him just stunning and that's weird but maybe you don't recognize it the first time around. Maybe you recognize it the second time around. It's like that. It's like King of Queens, like that show King of Queens. I never watched it, but you got to expect the fact that uh, these sitcom premises or, or some of these Woody Allen movie premises or some of these situations where the male is some toad or some overweight dunce who just can barely get out of his own way, but his wife's stunning. She's practical, she's smart, she's responsible. She's beautiful. There's always some weird inequity in those. And I don't know, that's stuff I take away. That's stuff I I gather, I guess, when I um, finally kind of cleanse the old palate, the old mental palate. I'm like, what the fuck's going on here, you know? But other takeaways you get from mushrooms that I get is kind of like, again, the fact that it does, it, ultimately, you know, put it in say maybe a more a more contemporary setting you'd say like oh uh, like the, the 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 division now that we see in society you know how these politicians are dividing us it doesn't matter which side you're on because each side divides the other okay so it doesn't matter if you're the conservative or the liberal Whoever's in power is going to do their best to kind of politicize and divide. I mean, look at current events. I mean, it's designed, it's, it, the, the media becomes the key component in reinforcing that division. So I took that with me, or I, it was, that was, that was, uh, that was reinforced to me. That was galvanized. That idea was galvanized to me when I was listening to uh, the following day after my, my trip when I knew that we were all one and then there was that still that that door that 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 door I didn't want to open but I didn't really try and find out what was behind it but I listened to this guy Duncan Trussell's podcast uh, Duncan Trussell's family hour he's a he's definitely a tripper he's into all that mushrooms and acid ketamine and all that stuff, and um, he was talking. He was talking with Sam Morrill, who I really, I love this. He's one of the, I, him and Mark Norman, I think are two of the m- more clever, sharp, funnier guys on the scene right now, as far as comics go. Um, 
you know, not f- 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 not to forego people like Bill Burr and stuff like that. I still, I mean, Bill Burr is a genius, but but the real the guys that I mean, I think are that maybe the next wave, you know, the next uh, the next class, the next graduating class, or the next kind of comics on the forefront are these guys like Sam Morill, Mark Norman. They have a podcast together called uh, We Might Be Drunk. It's very funny, but Sam Morill is kind of like. The, the the talk was with with comics. It's it becomes kind of how not to divide the room, because more so now. I mean, it's dangerous again to be a comedian in a good way, but also in a bad way. But see, if the topic if the topic becomes like something controversial, where it's going to be divided in party lines, say like this Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Well, we all know which side the liberals on we all know which side the conservatives on i mean you you can read it you don't even have to make an effort to find out so when you bring up something like that there's going to be a room division but the edginess of a comic is determined on how he can shock you kind of smack you in the face real quick but then let you know that he's on board with both sides and he's going to bring it around because you're going to shock one side or the other but you get but if they stick with you you're going to bring it all around and he's going to inform you that it's not about one side or the other. It's about the comedy within it. So they make themselves targets, but the division is, is there. But, um, but I think that's a valid point. People get like, I saw some clip about some girl getting up on stage the other day in front of this, uh, this guy was doing his, his act. And, uh, he was, I don't remember what he, I didn't. I just saw the clip. I didn't hear the audio, but she was uh, offended. Like, what, first of all, why are you in a comedy club if you're going to be so easily offended? So she got up on stage and, and they had to pull her off because, like, what gives you the right to go up? Like, this is a anything comics say is to derived to get a laugh because a, a good comic, if you're there to see a good comic, they're not there to create the division. They are there to make you laugh. They don't find the conservative angle of things funny. They don't find the liberal angle of things funny. They find the comedy in, like, for example, okay, so Duncan Trussell, who um, <laughs> used to open for Joe Rogan who with the satanic puppet <laughs> act that he had, who was, he even admits, like, he it was, like, maybe a little too much. So much so that when he got off stage, like guys like Bill Burr, who's sitting in the back, were like, "What the fuck was that?" But, <laughs> but he's like, "You know, you're taking a chance." I mean, that's what comedians do—they take a chance with their material. But he was talking to uh, Sam Morill, and, and he was talking about how, you know, people do the best they can. Parents do the best they can. Parents, you know, raising their kids to be a comic is never. There's never like a good moment, like when a comic decides to become a comic and they kind of inform their parents of this. There's never a point where <laughs> they're like, Oh great. How exciting. It's the same that go, it's probably the same response when you tell them like you're going to be a car salesman, you know, maybe a chef or a cook might be a little more palatable to the average parent, but definitely not a comic, definitely not a car salesman. And, uh, Essentially, Duncan Trussell's like, uh, well, you know, your parents generally are doing the best they can. Like, he goes, my dad had PTSD from, you know, Vietnam. For You know, he went there and he killed people. And Sam Morrill, without messing a beat, said, yeah, he didn't go there for the war. He just went there. <laughs> Duncan just laughed his ass off. He's like, man, I like your mind. That's funny. That's, that's, see, that's evolution. And that's pulling, uh, that's, that's circumnavigating the divide between both camps and bringing it around to something that we can all laugh at because war is not funny. Vietnam is not funny, but somebody that said they were in Vietnam, but weren't in the war. That is a brilliant, like that's good shit. So, and then just other than, I don't know, just other than stuff like that, I mean, I was really trying to just kind of re- recoup Saturday, most of Saturday. And uh, 
all in all, it was, all in all, it was a good experience, though. I think it felt cleansing. Um, I even called up, I even called up my uh, my 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 daughter down in UCLA. Called her the next day, and I said, "Hey, all right. Well, I got that out of my out of my system." She's like, "All right, good job, Dad." Because she sent me this this meme, this uh, Instagram meme of this kid, and uh, it's so it was so funny. It's basically like what she's. It was um, this kid who um, it, it said, "My parents, semicolon, please don't start anything on Thanksgiving." And then it goes, "Me, semicolon." there's four different pictures of each of these, each, this kid in each of these <laughs> four pics. It says, the war on drugs is racist. Like, he's, he's, he's being a polemicist. He's getting up on his soapbox. Psychedelics have medical value. Next frame. And then another, <laughs> the other picture shows him. People who use drugs deserve compassion. <laughs> and then finally, it's imperialist U.S. drug policy is the reason drug cartels exist. Like, that's the type of shit that I would say back in the day. And so, so Chloe recognized that, and she's like, I'm, she sent that to me. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I finally just I had to agree with her. Like, that's why I choose to kind of sequester myself from <laughs> any, any and all holiday functions. And she just... I told her that. She said, well, we applaud your service, Dad. <laughs> but she gets it, so I told her, like, well, I did it again. I did my annual my annual cleansing. Um, she was... I don't know what my kids think of me. I think they think I'm kind of... Probably something of a lunatic. And they wouldn't be too far off. But... Um, but for me personally, it helps. You know, I don't... Like Hunter S. Thompson said, I don't advocate drugs or insanity on anyone else, but it seems to work for me. And, uh... But that's the big takeaway. I get, I, You know, after that, it just becomes kind of a dystopic kind of enjoyment. You know, then you kind of embrace the dystopia of things. You, you embrace going into the holidays and realizing, like, um... As long as you get it, as long as you understand, as long as you're comforted by your perspective, you'd know and you realize in the depths of your trip, like it, it's not for you to go out and tell these people. It's not for you to, who cares? Who cares about, you know, it's all just part of this, it's all part of this journey that we're on, right? Like the drop of water that the first drop of water ever created on earth came from some brackish pond that maybe a fish had ingested or a, an amoeba or a zygote or a mitochondria hoisted that little drop of H2O on its back and climbed, climbed up through the muck and the mire and sprouted some feet, started walking and then and then that little, that little zygote, that little mitochondria was snatched up by something, re-ingested, and finally made its way. It became, who knows, it maybe vaporized. It maybe got pulled up by the, by the weather, it became a cloud, and that cloud traveled to Belgium. And then it rained on somebody in present-day Belgium. And it came down, and, or a bird washed itself with it, and then it shook its body, and it ended up in a river that flowed out to the Ganges or flowed out to the Seine River or it's flowed out to the Danube and it made its way to the Mediterranean Sea and then it floated around the Med Sea until it was picked up by a fishing net at some point in Sicily. And that that fishing net was pulled aboard and hoisted and wrung out and revaporized into another form. But it doesn't really matter because what I gathered was at the end of the whole journey, the end of the whole, my whole mushroom journey was whatever, whatever happened was, whatever happened in your journey, whatever you came away with on your quest was what was intended to happen. 
So there you go. So there you go. You know, and after that, all, all the rest of the dystopia in life just becomes funny and enjoyable and a laugh and a joke and, a, you know, watching Elton John sing Step Into Christmas dressed up like Donald Duck or wearing platform shoes that are six feet high with glasses that are the size of a Volkswagen Beetle and playing phenomenal piano just coked out of his mind wearing a Uncle Sam suit and a top hat that was in danger of blocking out the lighting at the show he's at playing to 60,000 people. You know, that's what life's about. Just making yourself open to experience and making yourself open to whatever perspective floats your way, whatever thing <laughs> opens that opens itself up to you and, uh, you know, makes you question reality. Because what is reality? Exactly. But I had a good time. And that's uh, that's all that's important, right? I don't know. It's my end of the year deal. And it's not even the end of the year. My, my daughter goes, uh, she goes, uh, but it's, it's not the end of the year. I go, well, I'm on a different time frame, kiddo. I'm like the Chinese New Year. I'm on a different calendar. I'm more like a... I'm probably uh, maybe not subscribing to the Gregorian calendar as opposed to, say, like the, you know, Judaic calendar. Oh, that was a some. You know what? Too, I just discovered. I'll, I'll leave. I'll leave everybody with this. I was fascinated. I was talking to my mom. I call my mom every Friday on my way down to wherever I'm going, whatever job I'm. There's usually like a thirty, forty minute trip I'm taking medical instruments or platelets or somebody's spleen to the airport so I called my mom I used to call her on Fridays check in on her and I told her I, I said I said did you know that Jews habitually habitually uh, eat Chinese food on Christmas day she didn't know that of course why would you I said well it's fascinating but why why do Jews just, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a reputational thing. And I, I said, uh, I said, just Google it. It's true. She's like, well, I'll, I'll Google it. I said, no, you Google now. You Google now. <laughs> and uh, I was just fucking with it. But I, but it is, it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but there's a whole lot of truth behind it. Jews love eating Chinese food on Christmas and Christmas Eve. The story of why Jews in America, stereotypically enjoy Chinese food. On Christmas, on, on Christmas, began like so many American Jewish stories on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe and Chinese immigrants were two non-Christian immigrant groups living side by side in nearby Manhattan neighborhoods. And while it's true that Chinese restaurants were likely the only option open for Jews on a holiday like Christmas, uh... They were kind of linked by their otherness on Christmas because, well, neither of which... I mean, Chinese are typically like Orthodox or Communist or some other... There's not a lot of... I don't think there's a lot of Chinese Christians. So, and turn of the century, neither had yet assimilated into American culture, let alone celebrating the, the holiday. So they kind of just, gang, you know, they kind of joined forces. Um... I mean, today I think they probably, you know, hopefully they feel embraced by society, but, you know, the isolation and negativity previously associated with the necessity to eat Chinese food had long passed, but Chinese food on Christmas is celebrated now by society at large. But, you know, on Christmas, you'll find restaurants like New York City's Mile End Deli featuring special Chinese Jewish menus specifically for the celebration of Jewish Christmas. Now, how about that? What I've always, I mean, and so I sent that link to her, but it is kind of fascinating. But what's even more fascinating is that, uh, I guess maybe this is, the again, the byproduct of my kind of blowing out my cerebral pipes, distilling my perspective is, why the hell 
did Barry Manilow have a Christmas album? He's Jewish. And that's it. That's it. It's all I'm, it's, that's that's probably all I can really that's probably the only stone left unturned by my little affair the other night. <laughs> Barry Manilow. He's uh, he's he's Barry Manilow. He's gay and he's Jewish. And he celebrates Christmas. <laughs> it's a weird world, man. It's a weird world. Well, that's that's the whole. Oh, but anyway, so back to my pick. So if you get a chance, Sam Morrill's got a, a a YouTube special, which I love. He did it. He did it. Uh, he demonetized it. It's available for anyone. We all are one. We all should share. We shouldn't take advantage of each other. So you put out a special like that called Up on the Roof, Sam Morrill. I had mentioned him previously at a previous podcast. He did a, um, a little documentary. It was called, ah, um, oh, shit. Now I'm drawing a blank, but look up Sam Morrill, YouTube, Up on the Roof. That's his comedy special. It's brilliant because it's not, it's not forced applause. It's not canned. It's not overproduced. It's underproduced. It's like those Woody Allen movies, kind of underproduced. Kind of, here it is, folks. There's no, there's no, there's no knee-jerk reaction reflex to laugh. There's no canned laugh. There's no fake applause like in some crappy sitcom like King of Queens, where it's all bullshit and some fat guy's married to a beautiful model. It's not. It's not true. It's not good. It's not reality. Reality is has hoisted its perspective upon you and it's and it's on you to reject that reality so let's start man so check out sam morell up on the roof check out woody allen take the money and run avant-garde it's breaking down the fourth wall it's talking to the camera it's it's life without you know bookends there's no beginning there's no end it just keeps going it's like slaughterhouse five it kind of messes with the timeline it kind of the end is the beginning the beginning is the end and uh you know so let's uh let's roll into hall into the holiday season with deliberation okay with a cleansed view with a it's like uh aldous huxley said once the once you once the once the doors of perception are cleansed we see things as they truly are i'll leave you with that I'll talk at you later. Arrivederci, babies.